Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Mark 11. We are going to be in Mark 11 this morning. Um, I'm really encouraged to see so many of you here this early in the morning. Did, did it feel early this morning? Um, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's ushers coming down the rows. I don't understand the whole spring forward thing. I like daylight savings. I like it being light later into the evenings. I just think it could be executed better. Um, if I were king, um, what I would do is I would do the spring forward thing, but I'd do it at four o'clock on Friday afternoons. Just go right from 3.59 to five. Like how awesome would that be? You'd accomplish the same thing. You just get to go home an hour earlier. Wouldn't that work way better? I just, I just think if I were king, everybody would be happier, don't you? And um, also leap year. Add the extra day in July. Go July 32nd. Nobody wants an extra day in February. Make summer longer, not winter. It just makes, it just makes sense to me. Um, I know for some of you, it's been a long weekend. How many of you guys were here for the Lee Strobel Conference? Um, great. Um, they mentioned that that's going to be online. Uh, just so you're aware, it's not going to be online on our website until Tuesday. We didn't want any of you watching it while I was preaching, that would have been rude. So it's going to be Tuesday that that actually goes live, and I think it's going to be there for 10 days. And what we're doing this morning is different. If you were here at the um, Lee Strobel conference, he was defending the faith. It was an apologetics conference. He was giving you um, confidence that your faith is not separated from reason, that there are defenses for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are reasons why God would allow suffering. So he was giving a defense of scripture. Sometimes I'm here and I'm preaching through a text and I'm very focused on application. So what are we to walk out of here and do? My, my uh, goal this morning is really, really simple. I just want you to uh, see your savior. And we're gonna be looking at a passage and I'm hoping that maybe you see a different facet of Jesus or a, a different perception of Jesus and maybe you've experienced before. We started a series two weeks ago and then we broke for baptisms last week. But the series that we're doing is we're looking at the week in Jesus' life leading up to his resurrection. I would argue that this week is the um, most critical, the most pivotal, pivotal in all of history. And uh, as we go through this week, we're going to go day by day. This is what happened on each day. So they started the series on Sunday with the triumphal entry. This morning, we're going to be talking about what Jesus did on Monday. Please hear me. My objective is not to uh, get through this series and have you be able to answer test questions on what he did each day of Passover week. My intent is that you see the things that were important to Jesus in this critical week of his life. So if, if you knew this morning that you had um, just a few days to live and clock was ticking and you knew by the end of the week that you would be gone, what would be the things that you would be trying to communicate? What would be the conversations that you would want to be having? What are the things that you would need to get accomplished if you knew that you just had a few days left to live? And that's where we find ourselves when we turn to Mark 11, Jesus is in the last few days of his life. This is a very important week. It says this in Luke 9:51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So his, the days grew closer. Jesus has set his face to accomplish the tasks that this week would unfold. 
And it's interesting, a couple of weeks ago when Ryan and Cal were preaching about um, Palm Sunday, what the events on Sunday, the week starts out and it's, it's like the disciples had to be pretty encouraged. Like they've been waiting to get to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is welcomed by the crowds. He is uh, acknowledged by some as the Messiah that the nation has been waiting for. In healing a blind man, he declares that he is Messiah. As he enters Jerusalem, the people are celebrating and there were high expectations for Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. There were some who believed that he would right what was wrong. He would fix what was broken. He would end Roman oppression. He would reestablish the prosperity of the nation of Israel. But over the next four or five days, the expectations of the crowd that greeted Jesus as he arrived in the city um, would fail to be met. Jesus would disappoint by not meeting the crowd's expectations. And two weeks ago, Cal and Ryan, they asked this question, what are some of the false expectations that we might have of Jesus that would, as Cal said, lead us or cause us to despise him? And this idea that he will give us whatever we want or he will fix everything that is difficult or his primary agenda is right now. And, and I would encourage you, whether you went to the least trouble thing or not, um, I would look at the third session, why God allows suffering, and, and, and it gives you some perspective on maybe your lives and some of the things you're going through at a different level, but if sometimes we place expectations on Jesus that lead us to be disappointed, and as he was arriving and the disciples were encouraged by the crowd and the crowd was celebrating his arrival, um, Jesus was a little less festive, we're told in Again, in Luke 19, when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And it says, and he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So understand, as the crowd is celebrating their Messiah, Jesus is weeping over the city, and he's not coming to Jerusalem to make peace. That's not his objective on this visit. He's been telling the disciples for weeks and it has increased as they have journeyed towards Jerusalem what will happen as this week unfolds. We read in Mark 8:31 and Jesus began to teach that the teach them the disciples that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after 3 days rise again. And he said this, let's look at this. He said it's he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So as he begins to tell his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed, uh, Peter's not happy. He, he's angry. He, he pulls Jesus aside and um, rebukes him. Is that like ever a good idea? No, bad plan, but that's what the text says. Then the next chapter in Mark 9, verse 30, it says... Again, of the disciples and Jesus, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Mark 10 same thing. It says in verse 33, and when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Okay, so if Jesus knows that he's going to be killed when he gets to Jerusalem, as they're walking towards Jerusalem, if I was Jesus, I'd be in the back. Okay, but Jesus is leading them. He is set his face towards Jerusalem. 
It says, they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking and the 12 again, he began to tell them what was happening to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. So as they get closer to the city, Jesus is leading, the disciples are afraid, they're confused, they don't understand and they're mad. And if you don't understand what's going on in the disciples' head, then you've never been in the room when you've had someone that you're very close to or love receive a bad diagnosis. I remember back when I was um, 32, my father had gone to the um, doctor on a Tuesday. He'd always been very healthy. I don't ever remember him being in the hospital or even, quite honestly, visiting a doctor. But the, on a Tuesday, he went in. He was having pain in his abdomen, and they um, drained five liters of fluid off of his abdomen. And then we went back. They did some testing, and myself and my older sister, she was a nurse. We went back that following Friday to get the results. And as we sat in the room, the doctor came out and let us know that my dad had advanced pancreatic cancer. And um, I'm a problem solver. My sister's a nurse. She's like, okay, what are the next steps? What are we going to do for treatment? What, what, what's the plan? And they looked at us and said, take him home and keep him comfortable. And, and I remember the emotions, the flood. It's like, I, I'm mad. I don't, you know, like, are we going to fight or what are we going to do? And we looked for second opinions, and then we got the second opinion that, well, maybe he can live another two, three years with a high quality of life and kind of that euphoric moment, like, hey, maybe this isn't as bad as the original doctor thought, and, well, he was dead in nine weeks. And this is the emotional roller coaster that the disciples are riding as they hear that he's going to die. They're angry, they're confused, they're afraid. And then they get to Jerusalem and the crowd rejoices and he's walked in as Messiah and there's a euphoric moment there, but this thing's going to disintegrate really quick as we begin to look at the events of what happens on Monday and Jesus knows where this week is going. He knows that the city will turn. He knows that the disciples will scatter. And because he knows how this week ends, he's talked about it clearly, we can know with certainty that the events of this week are not just reactionary and Jesus isn't just responding to what's happening, that there is intentionality in the things that he's looking to accomplish and the way that he responds. The big idea, if you're keeping notes, is this. Jesus isn't fooled by the parade. Jesus isn't fooled by the parade. We'll pick it up in verse 11 of Mark 11. We've just studied the triumphal entry at the beginning of Mark, the first 10 verses. It says in verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So that Sunday, he has the triumphal entry. He immediately goes to the temple. He looks around at everything and he departs the city Sunday night and goes to Bethany. Verse 12, on the following day, now it's Monday, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Here's the first point in your notes. Jesus demands health over appearance. Jesus demands health 
over appearance. Jesus cursing the fig tree, this account that we're reading right here is unique in all of the gospels. This is the only, what they say, uh, call a destructive miracle that is uh, recorded in any of the four gospels. Jesus curses a fig tree and this story or this account has bothered scholars and skeptics for years. I won't mention their names, but one New Testament scholar said this. He said, this is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. Another scholar said, this story does not seem worthy of Jesus. They determined that he was acting like a spoiled child. Why in the world would he curse a fig tree? It states clearly in the story that it wasn't the season for figs. If a tree is created to give fruit in its season, why would Jesus angrily respond to a tree and curse it if it wasn't giving fruit at a time it wasn't supposed to give fruit? And they look and they say, well, maybe it was just temper. He got mad. He was hungry. Angry, hungry. He was hangry. You know, you know what that's like, right? So, so maybe it was just this fit of temper, but again... It's interesting in the way that Mark tells the story. What Mark does in telling the story of the cursing of the fig tree, he begins by telling you that Jesus cursed it. Then he goes and tells you the next story about Jesus entering the temple later that day. And then what he does, different than some of the other gospels, he sandwiches the story. And if you look down in your text to verse 20... It says, and they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree is cursed. You cursed is withered. So they sandwiched the story of what's going to happen in the temple between the cursing of the fig tree and the withering of the fig tree. And it's a literary construct that Mark uses that basically is communicating that the story of the fig tree is an illustration of what's really going on when he enters the temple. Jesus isn't mad at the fig tree. He's not losing his temper. He is using this as a moment, as a visual illustration for his disciples to explain to them some of the realities of what is about to take place in the temple. Now, a couple things you need to know about figs because this is wildly important to your life. I don't know a lot about figs myself. I I like fig newtons. That's That's about it. But, but something you need to know about fig trees that will help you understand this, though you harvest figs in the late summer, early fall, when they blossom, they, they produce buds that are edible. They're actually quite good to eat, though I wouldn't know. You don't have to take my word for it. I can take you back to the Old Testament. It says in Isaiah 28, 4, it says they will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. So obviously the prophet Isaiah must have thought that these things were pretty tasty in the spring. You can't eat all the buds in the spring because then there'd be no harvest, right? But it wasn't unusual if a tree was already in leaf to approach the tree if you were hungry, there were edible buds and they were actually very, very good to eat. So that's what Jesus was doing as he approached the tree. But what he saw was a tree because of its leaves that appeared healthy In reality, it was producing no fruit. And this becomes a visual example of what Jesus is about to encounter in the temple. Though the temple appeared to be healthy, though it was bustling with activity, it was spiritually dead. And you need to understand, because the disciples who were men from up north in Israel, they're pretty fired up just to be in the big city. And, and as they approach the temple, it's easy for them to see the majesty of the building and all the activity and bustling 
and be impressed. It's interesting, in Mark 13, 1, Jesus is leaving the temple, and it says this, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They were enamored with the architecture of the temple, and he didn't want his disciples to miss the fact that though it looks good and though it appears healthy, if it doesn't produce fruit, it's worthless. Jesus will say in Matthew 7, verse 19, every, fruit, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, thus they will recognize them by their fruits. So we're going to hear about the temple, but before we get there, I think there's some things and some applications we need to make even into our own context and our own church. Is it possible for a church to look healthy, but the reality is it is not bearing the fruit that Jesus desires. Like one of the things that I like about the conference with Lee Strobel is you get to go to the Grand Haven campus and on a, you know, it's, it's a rare occasion that that room is full. And we had every seat full and we had overflow seating and, and it looks very, very healthy and the conference was fantastic. But the reality is things can look healthy but they cannot be bearing the fruit that God would want. So as you consider, what is, what is a church called to do? What, is, what does a fruit look like in a healthy church? I don't think it's confusing. Matthew 28, 19 says this. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So the first thing that we're called to be as a church is we're called to make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, not just people that proclaim Jesus Christ, but that actually are followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. It says that we're to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We did baptisms last week. I think across our five services, we did like 74 baptisms. And that's people taking a step of obedience, proclaiming that they are followers of Jesus Christ. Not only are we to produce followers of Jesus Christ, we're to produce people that will bear witness or give testimony to the fact that they are followers of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say this, verse 20 of Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, so a faithful church is in the business of making disciples who have a testimony that they're willing to proclaim and who are willing to walk in obedience to what God has called them to do. That's what we're called to be as a church. But this idea of fruit isn't just corporate. We got to think about it personally. What are we called to be as followers of Jesus Christ? Like, like can you put that into words? Do you, do you know if it, what it means to be a disciple? And again, I don't think the Bible lacks clarity on this at all. I'll read from Micah 6.6 6 with us talking about the temple in the minute. I think this is a good backdrop. It says in Micah 6.6, 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then he answers that in verse 8. See this, he goes, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today. Here, see those last three words? For your good. 
Not just that we'll be an obedient follower of Jesus Christ, but the text is clear, and Christ makes this clear too. He has come to give us fullness of joy. When we're called to be a follower of Jesus Christ, when we're obedient to what he calls us to do, we're saved a lot of sorrow. And God says, these are the things that are required of my disciples. This is what fruit looks like. Do those verses describe you? The, the Bible's not unclear on what it is called the church to be or what it is called us to be as followers. The only thing that isn't clear is how we will respond to the clear teaching of his word. So let's do this. Let's move on from the illustration to the thing the illustration is illustrating, okay? Here's, here's point two, verse 15. Jesus demands relationship over religion. It says in verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, Sunday night, we're told that he went to Bethany. That's a city that is southeast of Jerusalem, about two miles. And what we can kind of surmises as he gets up the next morning and heads into Jerusalem, he probably enters the city through the south gate. And if you come in through the south gate, one of the first things that you see is just the majesty of the temple in Jerusalem. Go ahead and put that picture on the lower screen. So, so here's kind of a picture of the temple. And what you see here this would kind of be the southern entry along these walls. And what you would enter into is the court of the Gentiles. And as he enters the court of the Gentiles, I don't want you to lose um, scope of what a big area that is. It's been described as being about two football fields wide by three football fields long. And again, it says they entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So that's all happening in this area of the temple. Now, to give you an idea on Passover week, how busy and bustling the temple was, the first century historian Josephus describes that Passover, uh, he actually describes in 65 AD, it's about 30 years after Jesus visited the temple, but in 65 AD, 255,600 lambs were slaughtered. That doesn't count all the Pigeons. So if you were a priest back then, this week you were kind of priest, mostly butcher. It was busy. And, and so as you think of the temple, you're thinking of this wonderful place of worship, kind of like we think of churches. But back then, it was, it was noisy. There was a lot of animals. And it brought to mind kind of my, my vision of what Chicago would have been like back in the 1900s with their stockyards. So one of the things I enjoyed about Lee Strobel is it was very obvious as he talked, if you listen, that he was from Chicago. He wasn't from Chicago. I don't even know what that is. He was from Chicago. So being from Chicago, a city boy, you need to understand that Chicago was known not as a beautiful city back at the turn of the uh, beginning of the 1900s. It was, it was a cattle yard. And if you listen to the firsthand accounts of the people who worked in the stockyards, and what they wrote to describe the stockyards, it's really interesting. Very seldom did they start by describing what they saw. They described what they smelt. 
and the smells and what it was like to kind of walk through that situation. And so if you've got an area that's two football fields wide by three football fields long, that's filled with cattle and pigeons and people bustling, are you kind of getting a picture of what that was like? And by the way, it's enclosed. It doesn't have a roof, but it has walls. Um, it stunk. Then after describing the smells, they described the sounds of all of these animals and the commotion that it would have made and the almost human sounds of the animals as they were slaughtered. That's what Jesus was walking into that morning. It's interesting that it was so busy that this court of the Gentiles in this season actually became known. It, it had the name of the court or the bazaar of Annas. Annas was the high priest and this is a man that Jesus will stand before in a couple days at trial after he is betrayed. So this thing was a picking circus that Jesus walked into as he approached the temple that day. Not only were there animals, but there were money changers. You couldn't pay your um, offering to the temple with Roman currency because it had pictures of Roman leaders and that was considered idolatry. So it had to be changed into Jewish coins and there was about a 25% surcharge on the exchange, according to historians. So all of this was going on in the temple ground. And please don't miss this. It was happening in the court of the Gentiles. And why that is important is this. If you were a Gentile who had come to the temple, that court was the only part of the temple that you could access. And as Jesus walks in that morning and he considers the holiness of the temple and that the temple was to be a place for worship, not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And the fact that the Jewish leaders had made the court of the Gentiles into this festival of selling animals and buying animals and exchanging currency, he looked at it and he began flipping tables and casting people out. It's interesting if you look at verse 16, it says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Uh, this court of the Gentiles actually became a shortcut through the city. And though this was forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy, that you should go around the temple if you're just conducting your daily business. People were just cutting through the court of the Gentiles. Complete disregard for that portion of the temple. And quite honestly, it was prejudice. It was national prejudice. It was racism by the Jews saying, the Gentiles are dogs. They don't matter. Doesn't matter what goes on here. So as Jesus comes in and is angered, he isn't fighting on his own account. He is fighting on account of the holiness of God. This should not be happening in this holy place, but he's also fighting for those who can't fight for themselves, the Gentiles, the lowest on the temple ladder of hierarchy. Jesus is doing battles for those who have been disregarded. Verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This was not an uncalculated outburst of temper. He had been there the night before. He had scouted it out. Jesus went there with the intent. He gave the illustration of the fig tree on the way. He was communicating to his disciples. It's what's happened in the temple. It is bustling with activity and it is spiritually dead at the same time. And Jesus is fighting for those who cannot fight for themselves. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness will boldly defend others. And Jesus struck in defense of the Gentiles 
and the holiness of God the Father. It's interesting, many at the time that Jesus entered the temple, as they were looking for Messiah, they believed that when Messiah come, he would purge the temple from Gentiles. The absolute opposite happens. He attacks the Jewish religious leaders and says, you have desecrated the court of the Gentiles. And this was intended to be their place to pray. Now, outside the temple, there's, inso- there's social injustice everywhere. Rome is brutally oppressing the nation of Israel. They're overcharging in taxes. The sick and the lame in the house of Israel, the people are looking at them and saying, well, it's probably because of their sin. It didn't make them a compassionate lot. There were social injustices that surround Jerusalem throughout the city, but Jesus is not here as a social reformer, but he is here as a religious reformer. He's seeking to save the lost. He's fighting for those who have been trampled by a religious system. He's living a life of humility and obedience to the Father. And in this story, we see Jesus go after three things in the temple that I think apply to us today because, quite honestly, the same three things he's attacking in the court of the Gentiles are the very same things he'll attack in our hearts today. So if you're keeping notes, here's three things Jesus messes with. Pretty formal points today, I know. Three things Jesus messes with. Here's the first one, money. He says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Psalm 62, 10, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Money in itself is not the problem. It's when we believe the false promises that money makes and we make it our primary pursuit. Money promises Safety. It promises security. It promises that it will supply for us the things that will satisfy us. It promises to give us joy, yet these are the very things that God has said, look to me, I'm the provider of the things that will satisfy you. The second thing after money we see is pride. This whole system, the religious system that was on exhibit in the court of the Gentiles, It was pride. It was a system of comparison. The Pharisees, those guys were rule keepers. So what the Pharisees did is they took the Old Testament law and then they came up with a complex set of rules in addition to the Old Testament law that you had to follow their rules to make sure that you were following the Old Testament rules right. So they made up the rules and then they judged you by whether you were following the rules that they made up. So you were now judged based off their religious system and there was an arrogance inherent in the Pharisees. Then you had the scribes. They were the educated men. They were the men that had studied the law. They had memorized the first five books of the Torah. And by education, they saw themselves as better than the rest. The priests were there. They were Levites. This was a um, national pride. They were the set-aside tribe that was called to be priest. And be it to the Pharisees or the scribes or the priests, the Gentiles were viewed as dogs. What a contrast when you consider the life of Jesus. Philippians 2.8 says that Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is going after money, he's going after pride, and the last thing he's going after is process. We have an incredible ability as followers of Jesus Christ to take the relationship with Jesus Christ and turn it into a process. Some examples, okay? Um, y'all come often to the very same service every week. Would you agree? And when you get to the very same service, do you sit in the very same seats? For sure. 
I see the same people sitting in the same seats if we're stucks. They should be, yeah, there they are. They're right there. I like, I know where people are, okay? We are um, creatures of habit. Uh, on my way to church, it doesn't matter if I'm going to Grand Haven or Spring Lake, I, I swing into Starbucks on the way. I usually get there between uh, 7 and 7.30. I get up at 6, I review my notes, I go over my PowerPoint, I come back into the service, and as I get there between 7 and 7.30, there's always another pastor sitting in the corner reviewing his PowerPoint and notes. So I go into Starbucks, I order my drink, I don't have to order it, they just get it for me because... They know because I'm there every week and it's just coffee. It's not that tough. So I get my coffee. They hand me my coffee. I give them the money. I put a little tip in the jar. I turn to Wally. I go, hey, bring it today. And he's like, you preach well too. And then we just kind of go on our ways. Same thing every week. And if we're not careful, because we love processes, we will turn our relationship to Jesus and just tell me what to do. If I've got to have devotions 15 minutes a day, if I've got to pray and do this, just give me the process. And what Jesus is communicating here is he flips over the tables, Messiah is here. This isn't business as usual. Because you've fallen in love with the process, which has led to your own pride, you're missing the very Messiah that you've been longing for. There's four responses to Jesus' demand. I want you to see this. We'll pick it up in verse 18. It says this, it says, and the chief priests and the scribes, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. So the first response you see is, from the chief priests and the scribes, they were seeking to destroy them. I think it's not too big a push to say they rejected him. Would you guys agree? If you're looking to destroy him, I think I would call that rejection. They're they're not going to listen. They're not going to change. They're not going to bend the knee. It's just rejection. They would rather kill him than bend their knees to the promised Messiah. Here's the second one, fear. And they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. What they feared was actually the crowd. Their desire was to destroy him, but the only thing that held them back was they were scared that the crowd would punish them for punishing Jesus. Now, I'm flipping this a little bit, but I think often as we consider our walk and our following of Jesus Christ, the crowd factors into our thinking as well. If I choose to be a follower of Jesus, not to destroy him, but to follow him, that's going to have implications into my relationships. It was not lost on me last week as I was in the baptismal tank at Grand Haven and we were doing baptisms there that during the course of the two services, I baptized a man who has come out of the Mormon church and I baptized another young man who came out of the um, um, Jehovah Witness church. And being baptized and declaring yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, that, that creates some family issues. There's some strife. And for some, you don't want to proclaim your testimony too loud at work or at school because you understand that there's a fear there that's because of the crowd, because of relationships. It says this, the reason they were feared because all the crowd, get this word, it says, was astonished at his teaching. The third word, some were astonished. Now, astonished means that they were stricken, that they were amazed. So some in the crowd, seeing Jesus' boldness as he entered the temple and seeing him take on the religious leaders, meant meant they were amazed, they were astonished, they were shocked, they were surprised. There was a strong response. It was interesting, um, 
Wednesday night, I had small group and the guys section broke. We were in split time. The guys were in my office. We walked back into the kitchen and the women were still meeting. I'm like, are you guys done? They were like, no, give us 10 more minutes. So the guys went back into the office. We're standing looking at each other. And I did what any good small group leader would do. I turned on the TV, right? And so we, we flipped on the TV to see if there's any sports on. But better than sports, there was this guy walking on a tightrope across a volcano. Did anybody see that this week? Like, like that'll suck you in pretty quick. And so we start to watch this guy walk across this volcano. Um, very bizarre. Very bizarre. He's got oxygen tank on. He's wearing a mask. He's mic'd in the mask. And he's singing gospel songs as he walks across this volcano for reasons known only, I guess, to him. Okay? But, but I watched the whole thing. Like, like some reason, I was, I was amazed. I was cheering for him, not against him. He was singing gospel songs. Okay? Don't judge my heart. But I, I'm just, I was just watching this whole thing. But, but here's the deal. In response to watching that on Wednesday night, as I consider the rest of my week, though I was amazed, though I was astonished, Nothing in my life has changed because of that. I didn't go buy a long pole. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not walking around the house like that. I'm not doing anything that would be impacted by the fact that I was amazed at what I saw. So there were some in the crowd that were amazed. But quite honestly, it never impacted the way they lived. I, I, I'm fearful sometimes that we go to an event like Friday night, we hear the defenses for Jesus and we're amazed at the story of the gospel and we're amazed at the testimony of trans lives that we see, but the reality is we think we're a follower, but we're really not. We're only just amazed. Be careful. There were some in the crowd like that. And then there's a fourth response. We see rejection, we see fear, astonishment. And then this simple phrase, and when evening came, they went out of the city doesn't say Jesus went out of the city. It says they went out of the city, which tells me this. Probably the disciples went with them, maybe some other followers. But there were some that seeing what happened in the temple, they said, no, we're going to continue to follow Jesus. The disciples had been warned. They knew what this week would hold. On Sunday, so encouraged by the response of the crowd. And, and, and they left probably that night so encouraged on what this week would hold, but now we're a day later and Jesus has brought the fight to the religious leaders in the temple and as they go back to Bethany one day later, their emotions had to be in a very, very different place. And yet they still followed. And maybe for some, what they were beginning to realize is that Jesus had gone to Jerusalem intentional on what he was there to accomplish. These were his last days. And we're going to look the rest of this series kind of day by day at who he talks to and what he accomplishes and what he says. But let me tell you this, it's going to get more tense. This is just the beginning. And there's going to be lines drawn in the sand by Jesus on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And what you're going to understand is that Jesus, the Messiah, the promised Savior, who takes God's wrath and bears the price of our sin in our place, he is going to give himself completely for us. And the only response to that is that we would be willing to give ourselves completely to him. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it this way. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that the fire has become flesh, that life itself has walked into our midst? 
Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it is a sham of total nonsense. Most people, unable to cope with either, with saying either of these two things, are condemned to live in the shadow world in between. Jesus is beginning a journey this week that will lead to the cross. He will give himself completely for us. And then by Easter Sunday, we're going to get to the good part, right? He's going to conquer death. He's going to defeat sin. He's going to rise again. And he will stand for all eternity as King of kings and Lord of lords. That is true. That is real. And has it amazed you or has it changed you? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And uh, even in these two simple stories, we're reminded that you're pursuing our heart and that you will go to great lengths to communicate to us that you want to see us changed for your glory and for our good. And Father, we thank you that you would uh, care enough to send your son into our brokenness, into our stupidity. And yet you loved us and yet you came. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. May we respond to the gospel, not just with words, but with changed lives. It's in your name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.